Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. Compact, efficient, and clean, the e-bike takes the form of a scooter in styles that range from fake Ducati to fake Vespa to the more typical general moped or battery-powered bicycle. The ones lent to us by the school reached a stunningly lackluster 48 kilometers an hour, enough to feel actual wind. E-bikes are disappointing in that, unlike a scooter, you can't go fast enough for it to be fun. Yet you can go fast enough to have a nasty crash. Whoever came up with the idea that dangerous roads could benefit from a zippy yet silent bike, on which users are encouraged to save battery power by not using the lights, well, they must have had one crash too many. Still, better for the lungs. The categorization of e-bikes means that they have been exempt from changes in laws which restrict transport in Chinese cities. Petrol-powered bikes are banned from many city centers, including Changshu. And this has caused a boom in the sales of e-bikes. 56,000 of the things were sold in 1998, and 21 million in 2008, and 32 million in 2013. It's thought that 85% of all the world's e-bikes are sold in China. Darting around the city on this glorified hairdryer, that statistic didn't surprise me at all. The school provided three complementary electronic scooters exclusively for the foreign teachers. One of the gestures that marked out the preferential treatment afforded to us. It was, I predicted, to play an absolutely vital role in securing a sense of freedom in a fairly restrictive environment. But when I sought out advice from my new Chinese friends and colleagues on e-biking to nearby towns, they gave three discouraging replies: one, the e-bike battery won't last; two, the e-bike can't legally travel on intercity roads; and three. Why would you want to do that? Living in the city, it transpired, was from a certain perspective to be marooned. Travel to other places is like island hopping, the in-between stuff forgotten and useless. This is reflected in China's internal visa system, the material representation of the fact that everyone here has their place. But today, battery fully charged and the revs cranked up, I put the bike to the test. From the quiet district where I now lived, I stormed into Changshu. Turning heads everywhere as my strawberry blonde head swept by like a fluffy highlighter pen. I crossed a pretty road over a large lake, saw kites flying, pushed on towards taller buildings on dusty streets, past half-finished elevated roads above mounds of rubble. Barges sat low in the many canals, sporting China flags, weighed down with coal and slate and brown stuff. Fishermen sat alongside them, thankfully not catching much in the polluted water. Jaywalking is not an issue here. Not only do pedestrians cross roads anywhere, but they don't tend to look. Cars take a similarly carefree attitude with the pavements. Where pavements are lacking, pedestrians go with the traffic, not against it. Reason being, so I assume, that if you get killed by a car, the last thing you want is to see it coming. 
I passed vast red billboards with comforting propaganda written in large yellow Chinese characters, promising among other things that the government will generate revolution, speed up the upgrade of structural development, and create a new chapter for science in Changshu. Changshu has a history of scientific achievement, if one can call it that. By the end of 1962, the struggling People's Republic of China had developed an increasingly troubled relationship with their communist chums in Russia, with the latter's outrageous aspiration for peaceful coexistence with the American imperialists. With a taste for grand devastation and a yearning for international respect, Chairman Mao Zedong began a project to build an atom bomb, just as the world almost fell into nuclear catastrophe during the Cuban Missile Crisis. In just two years, a successful test was done in the Chinese desert, after Mao redirected considerable funds and resources at the project. And much of the science that went into that explosive development was from Wang Gancheng, son of Changshu, certified genius. While the Soviets aided the development of the first atom bomb, sanctions were on China when they pushed forward to build a hydrogen bomb. Despite having to start from scratch, completely unaided, they had it completed and tested by 1967. If Guinness had a world record for the shortest time between developing each type of bomb, Wang Gancheng from Changshu would be grinning on page 34, superimposed over a mushroom cloud with his thumbs up. He died aged 91. An incredibly long life for someone who lived through revolution, famine, war, and a good deal of time playing with uranium. The billboard propaganda was a liberal tool across Changshu. All development this, prosperity that. Often the words simply comprised of gentle reminders to love the country or build civilization together, or study to cultivate yourself. The content of the commands are ultimately secondary to the act of constantly being told your place as a rule taker. People will chuckle that these messages are embarrassing and worthless, but as with commercial advertising, if you saturate a city in it, osmosis will do the rest. Glowing government pronouncements don't have a great track record in China. In the 1950s, the first decade of the People's Republic, Mao developed a program to make China a superpower at breakneck speed. It proceeded with some success during the first five-year plan and was to reach its zenith in the Great Leap Forward, which began in 1958. The plan, as Mao put it, was to overtake all capitalist countries in a fairly short time and become one of the richest, most advanced and powerful countries in the world. This fairly short time was at first five years, but then was cut to three years and then two years as reports of huge production achievements came in, reports that were inflated to the point of delusion. The propaganda posters of this time are flamboyant masterpieces of mass manipulation, baffling in their blatancy, and you get a chilling satisfaction in unpicking them. Rosy-cheeked men Women and children in workers' garb or aprons or school uniforms surf waves on tractors or ride dragons through the clouds. Unity, strength and progress are the key concepts, as is an unblinking faith in the movement. It's all expressed in pithy phrases with poetic meters reminiscent of Chinese poetry or traditional idioms, translating, for example, as The commune is like a gigantic dragon. Production is visibly awe-inspiring. 
and production takes leap after leap, the nation is becoming ever more prosperous. One wonders how a hungry worker would have greeted these breathless statements in the late 1950s. Under Mao's whimsical tutelage, workers were organised into communes to work under strict control. Farmers were forbidden from selling their crops freely and told to deliver quotas. Fulfilling quotas was the way to get the tokens needed to exchange for food. Where possible, labour was directed towards agriculture and steel, for which makeshift furnaces were made everywhere. As the focus on steel got greater, the harvests got smaller, but this wasn't reflected in the data. In fact, yields were wildly exaggerated, and the numbers were, on Mao's behest, printed in the People's Daily. Portions of field were even left empty for fear that the farmers would produce so much grain that it couldn't be stored. Under the self-imposed delusion of huge harvests, Mao exported what little there was or used it as fuel in a nuclear program. The resulting famine was exacerbated by poor weather, ecological damage and inane policies such as the campaign to kill sparrows. The logic was this. Sparrows are a pest because they eat grain and should be wiped out. The citizens enthusiastically got behind their leader, killing as many as possible and driving the more sprightly ones to death by exhaustion, by banging pans at them. With the sparrow population diminished, locusts had a free run on the grain, and the yield was even less. As for the huge quantities of steel produced, most was too shoddy to use. Workers found themselves stuck in their villages, unable to leave forbidden from cooking at home, and cooking equipment was increasingly melted down for steel. They survived, if at all, on meagre portions dished out at the commune canteen. Only workers were entitled to the rations, and cadres were not incentivized to prevent those on the road to death. A dead villager doesn't need to be fed, after all. Starvation led to a kind of numbness, where deaths of family members provoked no emotional reaction. In desperation, some ate earth and worms. Others turned to cannibalism. Children were killed to be eaten. There are stories of children being hung up by their ears or having their fingers cut off after getting caught stealing food. And some people were buried alive for the same crime. Some of these older people had survived the war with the Japanese and the protracted civil war between the communists and the nationalists. And now they were ruled by a man, Mao Zedong, who was said to have put their suffering thus. Deaths have benefits, they can fertilise the ground. When Mao had his 66th birthday during the famine, he didn't attend, but other party bigwigs enjoyed shark fin soup and fine wines. The Chinese government, reflecting to a certain degree Chinese culture, has difficulty accepting criticisms and giving apologies. A rare exception was when China's president, Liu Xiaoqi, visited his home village at the end of the famine. He found his sister bedridden, her husband dead, and untold misery everywhere. Deviating from the party line, he took responsibility, bowed, apologised to the visitors and resolved to make things better. But Liu was up against a mighty machine. The president sat firmly under the almighty chairman Mao, and fate was not to be kind to him. As for the Communist Party of China itself, the entrenched concept of face, maintaining prestige, supplements the political need to keep the one-party state beyond reproach. Hence the big controversies are hushed up. The government refers to the Great Famine, which killed between 20 and 45 million people, 
as the three years of natural disaster. I'd been buzzing around on the e-bike for over an hour by now, and still hadn't found the central business district. Actually, I was starting to wonder how lost I might be. I did glance at a map earlier, but had depended on heading vaguely north until hitting the obvious bustle of a town centre. Instead, I was drifting up and down inconsequential, dusty streets full of large trucks, flanked by ugly grey buildings stuffed with ma-and-pa shops. I was inundated with batteries, Household products, appliances, electrical adapters, northeast china noodles, baskets and a million cheaply made pairs of blue jeans. Somewhere along the line, I drifted into Outlet Changshu. It was just as this realisation dawned when the tyre began to hastily deflate, and with a thud and a fresh new soundtrack of uncomfortable grinding, I found myself careering into a central reservation of sorts, coming to a standstill next to a small mountain of discarded concrete. Lost and now stranded with a dead e-bike, the mission now resolved around getting back to the school. I called Shin, the school's chief bureaucrat, and flagged down a passing motorist, a confused weather-worn man on a three-wheel electric scooter with a trailer. He took the phone and explained to Shin where I was, and then we hoisted my e-bike onto his and drove together to a nearby bike shop. On the way, we had the same conversation that all foreigners have with strangers in China. Where are you from? What's your job? Are you married? Longer conversations might get into your salary and what kind of Chinese food you like best, but we didn't have time for that on this occasion. I thanked the gentleman with the trike and waited for Shin at the scooter shop. Amused mechanics sized me up and ummed and ahed at my busted tyre. One of them found the offending nail, and Shin arrived, arranged for a repaired tyre, and told me how much I should pay, before pointing me vaguely in the direction of home and setting off again in her people carrier. It was busy out here, hectic. In the pollution and the pace of a small unknown city, I felt breathless. Sun setting, the unrequited trip to the city in reverse. See the fishermen pack up and notice the listing swathes of bamboo beside the road. Students were piling out of the technology university, heading for street food battery dying. When an e-bike battery is on its last legs, it does something rather strange, something I'd associate with a fallen rhino, something, counting its last breaths. The bike slows to a few kilometers an hour, and moves forward in little bursts. A noise emanates from the battery, yump, 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 as it inches forwards. And this is how I jumped the final set of red lights before getting back to the school with a bemused truck driver waiting for me at his green light and the sun sinking into a green haze. <laughs>